0: Wanton soup has a really fascinating story behind it. Most of the chefs who came here to the United States We're from southern China, which is why we call it wonton soup, which is the Cantonese way of saying the the soup's name. And in Cantonese, it kind of means, if you listen to it carefully, it kind of translates to swallowing clouds, which is a really beautiful way of thinking about eating the soup, like the dumplings are clouds and you're swallowing them, right? So it fits very well. However, if you look at the etymology of the Chinese characters, you will see that they actually reference a different word. They reference a, a word called a word "hundun," which references the primordial chaos, which references the Taoist creationist story, and this is a fascinating story. Every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel.
1: Welcome food lovers to another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years both in Europe and in the US and every other week I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs and mixologists from around the US. And today's episode is really unique. Our culinary adventure take us to the heart of American Chinese cuisine, where tradition and adaptation come together to create truly unique flavor profiles. I am not having a chef today. We have a special treat for you as we dive into the pages of a captivating new book, Chinese Menu, by the incredibly talented author, Grace Lin. The book is not a collection of recipes. It is a celebration of stories, history, and the delicious world of American Chinese food. From fortune cookies to wonton soup, and even the mysterious origins of chop suey, Grace Lin takes us on a fascinating journey through the flavors that have become an integral part of American culture. We'll also explore how these dishes reflect the resilience of the Chinese immigrants in the face of adversity and how they have bridged culture gaps to bring communities together. So grab your chopsticks, get ready. Without further ado, let's dive right into our conversation with the author herself, Grace Lin. Hi, Grace. Welcome to uh, Flavors Unknown. I'm really excited to have you today.
0: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
1: You're welcome. You're welcome. Can you talk to us about the inspiration behind your book, Chinese Menu?
0: Sure. So Chinese menu, I am very grateful to be here because as you said, Chinese menu is a really different book than what most people think it is. It is not a cookbook. It is not a children's picture book. I, I am a children's book author and illustrator. So most people know me for that. So and very it's well not known. a children's yeah. picture book. It's not even a novel. It's, it's a collection of stories. I like to tell people, if you can picture like those collections of Greek myths, you know, those really thick collections of Greek myths. But so it's just like that. But instead of Greek myths, it's Chinese food. Yeah. <laughs> because it's like 40 different stories. It's like 300 pages fully illustrated. So
1: And illustrated by you, by the way. Yes,
0: illustrated you are, by You are me. very
1: talented, not only in writing, but those visuals are amazing. So oh, I mean, for the people you. that do not know your children' book and the other novels that you have written that are fantastic, I mean, they should really buy this book uh, because we all want to know, like the legends and the myth that you say, the story behind uh, the American Chinese, you know, food that people can eat at their Chinese restaurant. So, so what sparked your interest in exploring yes. American Chinese restaurant food?
0: So, so in two thousand and four. I wrote and illustrated a picture book, a book for kindergartners, first graders, called Fortune Cookie Fortunes. And in that book, you know, now most people know this factoid, but back then in 2004, I found out that the fortune cookie is a completely Asian American invention. And so like if you go to China and you ask for the fortune cookie, nobody knows what you're talking about. And like I said, now most people know this, but back in 2004, it was fairly new information. And I remember telling this to a lot of friends and even family members, and they would all say in kind of the same tone of disgust, oh, so fortune really? cookies aren't even really Chinese. And they would say like, so with so much disdain and so much like, so much, so much like disgust, right? And so <laughs> I, I always felt really bad for the fortune cookie, especially because I could kind of relate to the fortune cookie. I was born yeah. here in the United States, uh, mm-hmm. but obviously, you know, I have a Asian heritage. And so I kind of felt like gosh, a lot of people could say the same thing about me. Like, oh, she's not really Chinese. And that made me feel bad, but also made me feel kind of indignant because I was like, hey... There's nothing wrong with being Asian American. In fact, we should be proud of the fortune cookie because it's like one of the first truly Asian American foods. It's actually kind of a cool, neat thing for it to have, for us to have and for us to have created. And so I kind of started thinking about all of this American food with Asian roots because all the Chinese food that we eat here in the United States is not the same food that you would eat in China, right? It's all been changed. It's all been adapted for people here in the United States. And while a lot of people kind of scoff at it and call it like inauthentic or something like that, I really wanted to kind of change that mind frame. It's like, it's no, there's nothing wrong with it being Asian American. It's different. It's just different. And I'm hoping that this book... Gives people uh, more respect for their American food with Asian roots, and hopefully gives their gives more respect to their friends that are American with Asian roots as well. So
1: it's it's almost like a, a cuisine identity on its own, correct? Exactly. It's not Chinese food. It's not American food. It's no. American Chinese food.
0: Exactly. <laughs>
1: that really represents like the whole story of chinese immigration you know in in the u.s so so i i want to go back into this but just to finish the little story if some people really don't know what do you can you summarize like top line the the story of the fortune cookie you know oh
0: the story of the fortune (laughs) cookie yes so the fortune cookie is actually probably a japanese american invention um So it was probably invented by a Japanese American. However, because of World War II and Japanese internment, the Japanese Americans were not able to exploit their invention. Uh, However, because the Chinese restaurants at that time were searching for a dessert to give their Western customers, they eagerly probably grabbed upon this idea of the fortune cookie to offer their customers. And because there were so many soldiers coming in and out of San Francisco, where the fortune cookie was probably invented, and eating at Chinese restaurants, the Chinese restaurants that had taken this invention and started serving it themselves, the fortune cookie became ubiquitous with Chinese food. And when these soldiers went back to their hometowns in New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania, they asked their Chinese restaurants for the fortune cookie. And of course these Chinese restaurants were happy to happy to supply it once they figured out what it was. And then like I said, the fortune cookie became ubiquitous with Chinese food.
1: Okay, thank you. Thank you for sharing this. Before we we continue in this, you know, focus on American Chinese food, I, I just want to Use the time that you are here with me to go back into some of the novels that you have written. So Where the Mountains Meet the Moon and When the Sea you know, Turned to Silver, which really have played a role in shaping your identity. How, how did adapting Chinese folk takes influence your connection to your cultural heritage?
0: So I grew up here in the United States, and I grew up in upstate New York, which is very, very different than New York City. <laughs> Just wondering. where I grew up in upstate New York, there were not a lot of marginalized family. That means there were no Black people that I can remember that lived in our area. There was no Latinx Latinx people. We were the only Asian family in my town when I was a child, and so that meant that I was the only Asian girl. In my school, as in, in my elementary school, except for my sisters. And that gave me a really weird sense of identity. And most of my Childhood, I really rejected being Asian. I really did not want to be Asian. And I tried really hard to pretend that I wasn't. It was only as an adult that I realized that everything that I had rejected was actually something quite wonderful and actually something to cherish and something to value. But so I kind of had to kind of learn all the things that I didn't learn when I was younger. And I kind of tried to embrace the heritage that I never learned. And when I looked back to see what kind of roots that I had to this heritage that that I didn't learn, I found it in two things. I found it in food, because we always ate Asian or Chinese food every night. And I found it in the stories that I read as a, as a child the stories my parents shared with me. And so those are my two tenuous roots to my Asian identity. And so that's kind of what I leaned into when I started embracing my Asian identity. And those are the things that I put into my books. Okay. All of my books tend to be Asian-focused. And a lot of people think it's because I know so much about Asian culture. But that's not the case. It's because I want to know so much about Asian culture. I create the books that I do to learn more about it and also to establish more my identity okay. with my asian
1: roots so the two books that i mentioned before the novels are really connected to like the stories correct
0: yes okay. very much okay and now like the chinese folk tales
1: yes and now chinese menu is connected to to the food part very yes. cool <laughs> very nice Let's go back to this situation of, you know, American Chinese food connected to, obviously, Chinese immigration. So you you mentioned, you know, in the book, in the the resilience and adaptability of the the Chinese immigrants in the face of, obviously, racism and hardship. So can you share some specific example on how they adapted their cuisine?
0: Sure. So, so. As your listeners probably know, during the gold rush of the United States, a lot of Chinese immigrants came to the United States looking for gold mountain, right? Unfortunately, when they got to the United States, there was no more gold and many of them were too poor to even get their passage back. So they had to eke out a living here in the United States. And many of them eked it out by opening restaurants, Chinese restaurants, but, you know to to survive and to get people to eat their chinese food they had to kind of make a lot of changes and sacrifices one was that they had to price their food very very cheaply even though it was quite difficult to make and 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 but and another thing that they had to do is they had to adapt to the flavors of the flavors of the people here and not just the flavors the the ingredients one example is beef and broccoli there is a beef and broccoli is a very traditional dish in china but here, but broccoli here is very different than broccoli in China. And so, of course, when the immigrants came here and they wanted to make beef and broccoli, they could not find the same broccoli. But there was this other thing that people were calling broccoli. Uh, So they decided to use that. And that is the beef and broccoli that we know. And the broccoli that we know and the broccoli that we use is actually Italian broccoli. (laughs) It's like, it's much sweeter. It's, it's much softer. so it's quite different. So that's just one small example of, of them changing the ingredients, but also the flavors too. They we the United in the United States we tend to like things that are a lot sweeter, a lot saltier, a lot crispier and fried. And so that's where General General Toast Chicken came mm-hmm, from. Mm-hmm. The original General Toast Chicken is not so is not deep fried and not that candy orange colored sweet red either. <laughs>
1: But you like to order it though.
0: Oh, it's right? delicious though. I'm not saying <laughs> yes. that it's not good. I know. I know I'm just know. saying it's different. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think I, I read somewhere that this is one of your, uh, you know, go-to uh, order. You know, when you order Chinese food. Yes. So, it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so, you you mentioned something about you know the cost and the fact that they had to price, you know, those items like very low on the menu. So do you think, I mean, how can your book help change this stereotype of Chinese cuisine as cheap food, you know, that still exists today in some people's mind?
0: Yeah, that's my hope. You know, because like I said, it's because of the sacrifices the Chinese immigrants had to make. People think of Chinese food as cheap food and they don't realize that it has this rich, beautiful history and mythology behind it. You know, Chinese food is actually quite as difficult to make as French food, but French food we have put on a pedestal and we we really value that cuisine. But I don't think we can say the same thing about Chinese food, which is just as complicated to make. Um, And my hope is that this book reveals a lot of the beautiful and rich history of this food and hopefully gives, elevates the food that we've considered cheap for so long and realize that, oh, it's actually much more valuable than we first thought.
1: Okay. And, And as you said, it's an adaptation, you know, of Chinese cuisine, you know, of by the Chinese immigrants using local ingredients and as well adapting to the local taste. So there is this bridge for me. I see that, you know, the bridge between a Chinese culture and American culture. So how does American Chinese cuisine could serve that that bridge and could and could you share an example of how it has brought different communities together?
0: So I feel like so American Chinese food is a bridge because I talk about how we are I, it's got this rich beautiful heritage right and it's real and of course American Chinese food is also is not quite the same but it still has these roots now. Your question was how has it brought communities together? Yeah. Like I think we can see this at every Christmas <laughs> when 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 the Chinese restaurants are full of people who don't celebrate Christmas. <laughs> there's kind of a yes. there's kind of a, a joke, but I think it's actually quite beautiful that like a lot of Jewish people That's go true. To Chinese restaurants at Christmas time because it's one of the few places they can go that that are that is open because it's one of the few places that celebrates That's non I've non- thought about that yeah non Chris, Chris, not Christmas you know and so it's it's a place and I feel like those kind of things is what makes Chinese food uniquely American. It's been a home for Americans who perhaps don't fit into. The normal Christmas culture, or and other things like that. It's it's always been a staple for for people who you know are too tired to cook that day. We can always order takeout. It's you that that even the carton, the Chinese um, takeout carton, is so ubiquitous mm-hmm. to to like to to people. Relaxing and enjoying themselves, and so I—that's kind of how I feel. Sure, and eating
1: and eating with chopsticks eating together. And yeah, eating and eating chopsticks and trying not to be poisoned.
0: Yes, <laughs> I love that. I love that story. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just
1: touch, like, on the on the story about the the potential origin of chopsticks, and, sure. and you know, and 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 a very nice legend. You know? <laughs>
0: did you want the origin or did you want the poison story? <laughs> I think, can you
1: do two? Yes. (laughs) That would be great. So,
0: So there's actually two origin stories of chopsticks, but I'll tell you the more heroic one. The heroic one goes back to Yu the Great, who was this legendary emperor of China, like one of the very first. And... He before he was emperor, before he was known as Yu the Great, he battled the great floods of the Yellow River, and instead of in his way to battle the great floods was to build all these trenches and ir- this whole huge irrigation system so that when the when the river flooded, it, the water would have some place to go that wouldn't destroy the villages. And this was quite a project because remember they didn't have machines or anything back then. And so he was always constantly working night and day, night and day. And one day, he was really, really hungry after a really long day of work, and his food was cooking and his food was just about ready to, to be eaten, and he picked it up when all of a sudden he was called upstream to go fix a problem and so it was an emergency so he started running but he was still really hungry so he grabbed his food and he was trying to eat at the same time as he was running upstream but of course the food was really hot and he burned his fingers so he grabbed two sticks from a nearby tree and he started eating with the sticks as he was running upstream and that they say is how chopsticks were invented. (laughs) (laughs) So that's one story of Chopsticks. Yeah. And there's the another other one which- is the
1: bird and uh, the point. <laughs> I, I, it's beautiful. I mean, it's,
0: it's, no,
1: that's true. It's, it's, it's great. It's a beautiful story. And
0: so, this other story is the story of how there was this minister who pretended to be who pretended to be feeble because he didn't want to serve the emperor anymore, but he was destined for greatness. However, because he wasn't serving the emperor anymore, they lived, he and his wife lived in poverty, which caused the wife to have a lot of resentment towards him, so much so that she wanted to kill him. (laughs) Because, and since she wanted to kill him, one day she served him poisoned food. However, before he could eat the poisoned food, a magical bird flew in, or a, a bird with magic powers flew in and said, "said don't eat the food, don't eat the food. And he's like, what? Is this bird talking to me? And he followed the bird outside, and the bird uh, landed on two sticks and said, don't eat the food with your fingers. You must eat them with these sticks. And so he took the two sticks, brought it back in, and he started to eat the food. But as his these two sticks touched the food. They started smoking and smoking and turning black, and that's when he realized that the food was poisoned. And from then on, he always ate with chopsticks.
1: With chopsticks. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful story, and and you know when when an introduction you were talking about the the different legends and mythology and you know connected to you know Greek mythology and so on. I mean there's so much history of course in you know in China and that when I flipped through your book I I, I couldn't stop like reading and I'm like oh I'm going to learn something new here and there's <laughs> going to be a poetic as well, you know, legend behind it. So that was very really cool. Shifting our focus on you know to one of the other fascinating story of of the book is chop suey. So can you explore the origin of this dish and and the legend you know, behind it.
0: Sure. So, chop suey. So, chop suey is one of those dishes that we often hear in America disdain as not really Chinese food. And that might be true. There, there is a possibility that there is a real uh, kind of chop suey dish in China, but the real chop suey dish was probably uh, a meal of uh, a dish with, with animal entrails and all these things that probably here, people here in the United States are not really fond of eating. So, so chances are that this animal entrail dish was adapted and made into chop suey here in the United States. But the myth or the legend goes that what happened was that during the gold rush, the miners, the the Chinese immigrants, like I said, had opened up Chinese restaurants. And because they were Chinese, and obviously visually different, they faced a lot of racism and violent racism. So they had to be very careful. And so the story of chop suey goes that one night, a group of Drunk miners came into a Chinese restaurant where the chef was closing up uh, and they demanded food. They were hungry. And so the chef, knowing better than to anger a group of drunk miners, rushed to the kitchen to try to find something to feed them. Unfortunately, there were, he had used up all the food, all the ingredients of the day, and there was nothing left in the kitchen for him to make a meal out of. The drunk miners are getting angry and angrier, and so in desperation, the chef The chef took his scrap bin or his trash bin, dumped it into a wok and stir fried it and served it to them. Uh, They loved it. Uh, They must have been very drunk. (laughs) They loved it and they asked what it was. And the chef, knowing that these drunk miners would not know know his Chinese words, said it was called... Sapsui, which means odd scraps in Chinese, which they interpreted as chop suey.
1: <laughs> oh, the, okay, the Americanized, you know, <laughs> version of the name.
0: Okay. Yes, wow. though most people think, but most historians do not think that that is true. They think like that is the legend that has lived on and on, and probably why we disdain chop suey as not really Chinese food. Most historians say that's probably not a true story, and it is actually probably more likely that it is the entrail dish.
1: Okay. So people, because it was based on awful and, you know, the byproducts of uh, animals and so on that, you know, they replace those parts with more noble parts, you know, of yes. uh, animals here in, in the yes. US. Another one, which is, you know, my favorite soup, the wanton soup, which is really comfort, you know, comfort food for me. So what do you think makes it like universally like comforting and, and how does it cultural significance add depth, you know, to? Its appeal
0: i think the wonton soup is just so comforting to people and it was it's one of the th- soups that are not intimidating for somebody who's first trying chinese food like the egg drop soup might be intimidating to somebody who's never had chinese yep. food before mm-hmm. you know they'd be like oh egg soup you know but the wonton soup is like oh, okay so this is kind of like a chinese dumpling soup because most westerners are used to dumplings they're used to Mm -hmm. like the chicken broth of a chicken broth of a noodle soup and there's a
1: great story about dumplings in your book as well
0: yes (laughs) (laughs) so so i think that one of the reasons why it's so universally beloved is because it was a very accessible soup for people and then once they tried it they really enjoyed it however wonton soup has a really fascinating story behind Mm it um you know, most of the chefs who came here to the United States were from southern China, which is why we call it wonton soup, which is the Cantonese way of saying the, the soup's name, which is, and, and in Cantonese, it kind of means, if you l- listen to it carefully, it kind of translates to swallowing clouds, which is a really beautiful way of thinking about eating the soup. Like the dumplings are clouds and you're swallowing them, right? So it fits very well. However, if you look at the etymology of the Chinese characters, you will see that they actually reference a different word. They reference a, a word called a word "hundun," which references the primordial chaos, which references the Taoist creationist story. And this is a fascinating story. So the Taoist creationist story goes that millions of years ago, before there was anything in the world, before there was a world, there was just this soup, <laughs> this broth, yeah, sure. right? Just this soup. And that's what the soup of your wonton soup represents. What was there before the world was ah, created. Okay. And they said, but over thousands and thousands of years, something began to form in this soup of the universe. Something round and white. They said this round and white thing start to congeal in this soup. And that's what your dumpling symbolizes. They said But in the story, Daoist story, they said this round and white thing was actually an egg and it grew bigger and bigger because inside this egg was a giant, a giant named Pangu who grew so large that finally he broke out of the egg and he pushed the top of the egg up, up, up above his head and he stomped the, the bottom of the egg down, down, down below and he kept growing and growing and growing for thousands and thousands of more years, pushing the top of the egg further and further apart from the bottom of the egg until they could never ever be joined again. And after that happened, Pangu fell over and died. And so the top of the egg became the heavens and the bottom of the egg became the earth or the world. And all the life on, on the world or in the earth is because of Pangu. Because when he died, all, all of him became life on earth. They said one of his eyes became the sun. The other eye became the moon. His blood and his tears became the water and the rivers and the streams. His, his, his hair became all the trees, became all the trees and plants. And the thing that really gives me the heebie-jeebies is they say that <laughs> all the lice that lived in his hair became all the animals of the earth. <laughs> but this
1: is more I- poetic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but the whole idea of you eating the soup of wonton soup is that you are kind of being like pangu. You're creating creation of the world. So your soup is the universe, and that wonton is the egg. And you cracking that wonton open to eat it, you are like Pangu creating the heavens and the earth.
1: Okay, ah, okay, I don't know if uh, I'm going still to enjoy the wonton soup the same way. <laughs> the dumpling is, you know, it's uh, it's an uh, it's a good story. In your book, you have uh, obviously mentioned a, a lot of those rich history and myth and legend that are behind, you know, some of the dishes that are commonly found in American cuisine restaurant. Can you, can you highlight one more story, you know, for us that you really like? Sure. You know, My favorite uh, have your favorite one?
0: Yes, the one that I love to tell people is the one about spring rolls. Spring rolls, we call them spring rolls because in China most people eat them around the spring festival. But the name has actually nothing to do with the origin story. The story of how spring rolls was invented was because of a Ming Dynasty minister who would get his work done twice as fast as all of his other colleagues. In fact, he got his work done so quickly that all of his other colleagues were very jealous of him, and they suspected him of cheating. So much so that they went to the emperor and they said, this minister is cheating. There's somebody else doing his work with him or for him. There's no way anybody can get their work done that quickly. Now, the emperor noticed that the minister did get his work done quite quickly. So he called the minister to him and said, so how do you get your work done so fast? And that is when the minister revealed his big secret. And his big secret was that he could write with two hands. And he said, since he could write with two hands, he could get his work done twice as fast. Of course, no one believed him. And so the emperor said, all right, Here are nine boxes of records. You have nine days to copy all of these records. If you can truly write with two hands, then you should be able to do that. So the minister brought all these records home, opened up the boxes, but when he saw how many records there were in the boxes, he realized that he would have to work night and day without stopping, without any rest, if he was going to finish copying all these records, even with writing with two hands. So he immediately started write, started copying these records, working and working, and working night and day, night and day, not taking a not taking a break. Now this minister had a wife who was quite worried about him, especially when he got to around like day three. And she's like, you have to at least eat. And he's like, no, no, I cannot eat. My hands must keep writing. And she's like, well, then I'll try to feed you. And she tried to feed him things like soup and noodles, but they were very messy. And he's like, no, 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 I need my hands to write. And so she went to the kitchen and she's like, I need to invent a food that he can eat without using his hands. And so she invented a rolled food that she could hold and he could bite off while his hands were still writing. And so that's what she did. She invented this rolled food that he could bite off while his hands were still writing. And that food was, of course, the spring oh, roll. Spring roll.
1: <laughs> Very good. Wow. Yes, this is an- another beautiful story of your book. <music> So, what do you hope, like, readers will take away from from Chinese menu, in terms of their perception about American Chinese food, obviously?
0: Well, I hope they take a lot away. I mean, I have so many like hopes and dreams for this book, right? And this book really, really was a huge labor of love for me. And i I hope that when people see the book and have the book in their hand, they can they can feel that. Um, First, I hope that they just read and enjoy the book, and I really believe that if they read and enjoy the book, every time they eat Chinese food afterwards, they will enjoy it so much more. (laughs) So that's my hope: is that it just makes their eating experience that much more enjoyable.
1: (laughs) I mean, I I discovered a lot of things. (laughs) I learned a lot of things that I didn't know. So I mean, your book is amazing. You know, for that. Thank you.
0: But then, of course, I hope that they they do all the other things that we talked about earlier i hope that it gives them a newfound respect for this chinese for this american chinese food for the asian americans in their life and you know and i hope that it just makes them appreciate this this part of our culture you know in the book i talk about how this food is american chinese food so that means any American can really claim it. You know, we call it Chinese food, but since it's American Chinese food, you know, we can all claim it, no matter no matter what our roots are. Mm-hmm. I guess one of the things that that really gave me the motivation to do this book was that during the pandemic, when they were calling, you know, the coronavirus like yeah. flu and all those things, oh, I know and people were refusing to go to Chinese restaurants because of the stigma, the, the stigma of it being Chinese food and the virus was from China, you know, like, and I really, that really was hard for me to accept because to me, these Chinese restaurants here in the, in the United States, they are just as American as the pizza place down the street, as the hamburger joint down, you know, down, down the street and the other block, you know, like, and I'm hoping that this book helps people realize how American these Chinese restaurants really are. And so and it's not something to feel as foreign because it's actually, it's actually part of their culture, too.
1: It's you know excellent points you know one that you you are making here during the like the whole situation with the, the, the COVID, um and the pandemic. And another uh, things I wanted to ask you is while you were writing the book Chinese Menu, it, which always you know writing is filled with challenges and discoveries and and so on. So if there's anything that you can share with us about like the challenges that you have faced while you you were researching and and writing uh, <laughs> for this book.
0: Yes. I mean, there was, it, it was, it was, like I said, it was definitely a labor of love. <laughs> so uh, I told you that I came up with this idea, um, uh, in 2004, and so since 2004, I've been slowly collecting stories. You know, like when my father would tell a story, I'd quickly write it down. If I saw a story somewhere on the internet, I'd quickly write it down. But when we finally decided to make this into a, a book, my publisher told me, "Oh, you know, we're gonna." It's classified as nonfiction. And I was like it is. like I guess mythology is, even though it's myths and legends, it's, you know, like Greek myths is actually classified as nonfiction. And I was like, oh, okay. And that actually gave me a bit of anxiety. And so I actually hired a research assistant and I said, these are all the stories that I have. I need you to find secondary sources for all of these stories. So I know that it's just not like my father making it up at the dinner table one night, which which we did find that he did for a couple of stories. Oh, that's and, funny. So, <laughs> and so, you know, so he, so she and I worked together and she, she found, actually, she found stories that I didn't even know of. And so that was quite a project to, to verify which stories had real roots in Chinese history.
1: Very good. I'm going to switch to I'm looking at the time to um rapid fire questions. So Sure. What is your go-to comfort food? For American Chinese cuisine.
0: Oh, what's my go-to comfort probably yeah. dumplings. Definitely dumplings.
1: Dumplings? <laughs> Which one? Because there's so many.
0: I know. Usually the, the ones that are at the at at any almost every Chinese restaurant here in the United States is usually the I guess we would call them pot stickers. So yep. if they have those, that's what I would get, because that's usually what they have. But if, if I have my choice, I'd get the soup dumplings, the Xiao long Bao. If they have Oh that. Yeah.
1: Mm. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I, I had a question for you about like what is the, and maybe listening to what you said, I probably know the answer, but in a single word. How would you describe the role of American Chinese food in American culture?
0: Oh, gosh. In a single word? Yes. How would I... I mean, that's the I... one
1: that came to me because listening to you. The bridge. The, <laughs> the bridge. bridge you know, oh, you what know? a beautiful...
0: Oh, <laughs> you know, I was going to say... I don't know what I was, gonna say. I was going to say. I was going to say... I think I was going to say something along the lines of resilience. But I okay. think bridge is better. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, I... Yeah, resilience is the symbol of, yeah, yeah, of what the food is about, for sure. If there's any favorite story or myth related to American Chinese food that you Mm. like the book, uh, the best in feature in your book?
0: One of the ones that I like the best, which is quite long, which is why I never really share it verbally or orally, is the one on silver, white hair, silver needle tea. It's about this evil Chinese dragon, which is actually quite Rare in Chinese stories, usually dragons are considered good. But this is one of the few stories where the dragon is evil, and how how a young girl has to kind of outsmart him to get this this special tea.
1: So we are going to go a little bit away from you know Chinese American Chinese food. I, I just want first, besides Chinese food, what's your go to cuisine that you like?
0: Besides Chinese food, gosh. <laughs> Well, honestly, uh, I would have to say Italian food. I, okay. in, in school, when I went to, I actually studied at the Rhode Island School of Design and I spent a semester abroad in Rome, Italy. So okay. I would say probably like pizza. Well, we, you know, we had the special, you know, they called it avia, which is like the really thick crusted pizza. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so now, in thinking about you as a writer, so at what age did you know you wanted to become a writer?
0: Oh, well, um, I, I think I knew I wanted to become an author when I was in seventh grade. I had always liked writing wow. and illustrating books. And I, whenever there was a school project, I always made a book. So I remember we were studying the Vikings in sixth grade, and I would make a book about the Vikings, When my friends would make like a Viking helmet or like a Viking ship. But I only knew that I wanted to be an author after seventh grade, because it was in seventh grade that my teacher stopped me and, and said, "Grace Lynn, I notice you like making books. And I said, yes, I do. And she said, I found this contest called the Written and Illustrated Awards Contest for Students, where if you write and illustrate your own book and send it into this Big national contest. If you win first place, they'll publish your book. I think you should enter. And so I said, okay. And so I... Spent all summer writing and illustrating this book. It was my masterpiece. And I sent it into this big national contest. And in about 11 months later, I got a letter in the mail. I did not win first place. So my book was not published. And I didn't win second. And I did not win third. But I did win fourth place. And nice. with fourth place, there was still a cash prize. There was a cash prize of $1,000. Really? <laughs> and wow. I was so excited Absolutely. and thrilled. And that was the first time I realized that you could actually make money making books, and so that's when I decided I wanted to be an author and illustrator as a job. <laughs> so,
1: as I have studied writing as well, and I said, you know, I mentioned to you before we recorded that, you know, I published a book in in November last year. Uh, I'm curious sometimes when I talk to other, you know other authors that their way of writing. So what what's your process i mean do you write like every day is there specific hours in the day that you like to write
0: you know it, i i try to have a schedule but usually it doesn't really work out <laughs> so but for me because i am an illustrator as well yeah. i mm-hmm. usually come up with the idea and and Usually I write some kind of proposal that I work with with my agent and then we send to the publishing, to the publisher. Hopefully they accept it. If it's accepted, then we set the deadline and then I start working on it a little bit at a time, a little bit of time. And then as get closer to the deadline, I start working on it a lot of the time, (laughs) a lot of the time. And then as it gets even closer to the deadline, it starts being like 24 hours a day. I'm working on it until I hit the deadline. So it's kind of this crescendo of work.
1: And do you like to write in silence or with music background?
0: Definitely silence. I'm silence. Kind of, I, I and I like need. I think many. I have a. I have an eleven year old daughter, but now it's not really as much of a problem because now she's eleven. But when she was younger, it, yeah. uh, like it was. I, could, it, I always had such a hard time working. When she was downstairs in the house, and so I used to have to go like go away, like on retreat, so yeah. like find places uh, elsewhere to write because I needed like that complete. So like, where did you go? Yeah.
1: That was my other question. Do you have a yes. favorite place to write? So um, where did you go at that time?
0: So. When it gets really close to deadline <laughs> and I have to work 24 seven, I usually go on retreat at this place called the Highlights Foundation. <laughs> you might know the Highlights magazine. You usually see a dentist office for kids, but they all actually have a retreat center as well, which is Wonderful for children's book authors and illustrators. And I usually like a book like two or three days, maybe a week, depending on how badly I'm behind. And I'll go there and I'll just like completely focus on the writing.
1: If there's anything that you wish you had known about writing when you started your career?
0: Oh, gosh. You know, I started my career so long ago. My first book was published in 1999. And it was, and even back then, my first book was called The Ugly Vegetables, and it was a story about basically about food. (laughs) Yes, already food, but it was about me and my mother and how she used to go Chinese vegetables in her garden while everyone else in the neighborhood grow flowers. And back then, there were so few books with Asian characters in it, that because my book had an Asian character in it, I was immediately pigeonholed as an Asian American author Mm. and illustrator. And in the beginning, I really did not want to be pigeonholed that way. I thought it was a burden and I thought it would basically limit my career and limit what I could do. If I could go back, but slowly, you know, as time went on, I just embraced it because I realized those were the book's that I really, truly believed in the most as well. And if I could go back, I would go back to myself at that time and say, you know what? (laughs) Do the books you want to do. Like, I would try to get to that point where sooner, instead of like trying, instead of torturing myself. (laughs) Sure. For your your mind
1: of it. Yeah, Yeah, I would have been like,
0: just, it's fine. (laughs) Uh Just do, like nobody creates, honestly, Very maybe some people, but... Most people do not create books for the money. <laughs> they create the books for, the, for love. So create yeah. the books that you love.
1: So my last questions, and it's back to uh, food, China, and so on. So if you had a time machine, what time period would you travel to China?
0: Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's a good question. You know... I don't think. I think I wouldn't really want to go <laughs> to, to ancient China. It's pretty tough times, especially yeah. for women. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah. right, like, I, maybe I would go in the future <laughs> with the hopes, hopes that things Hope are like get better. Better. And better. <laughs> <Yeah>. That's <laughs> like, good. Like now we have air conditioning, you know, things like that.
1: <laughs> You're I, definitely I, an American Chinese yes.
0: woman. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd go for the future.
1: <laughs> Very good. Grace, thank you very much for your time. We learn a lot about American Chinese food. If people want to obviously learn more about all the great dishes that you had, to have a a story behind the dish and as well the connection of the myth and and legends connected to those dishes, they need to buy Chinese menu from Grace Lin.
0: Thanks so much.
1: (laughs) And there you have it for the enthusiast. Another captivating episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. We hope you enjoyed our exploration of Chinese menu by Grace Lin and that it left you with a deeper appreciation for the flavors that have shaped American Chinese cuisine. A huge thank you to our incredible guest, Grace Lin, for taking us on the culinary journey and sharing her insights into the rich history cultural significance, and personal connections behind these iconic dishes. If you are hungry for more, don't forget to check out Grace Lin's book, Chinese Menu, and embark on your own adventures through the pages. Please share this episode with foodies in your life. You can find the show notes of the episode on the website flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget also to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And now it's time for us to say goodbye until our next episode. Until then, keep savoring the flavors of the world. Keep exploring the unknown. And until then, keep in mind that the people who likes to eat are always the best
0: people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at flavorsunknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.